0: So when I was a teenager, I worked in the grocery industry. I worked at a place called Foodland, Foodland the Dude Land. And I have so many great memories of working there, but one of the, one of the uh, memories that isn't so fond is that we had this job, and some of you who worked in the grocery industry may recognize this, you might have had to do this, it's called Facing the Shelves. And so every once in a while when the, when the customer base would go down, they would say, uh, that my boss, uh, he was a... It was an interesting guy. He was, he was great, actually. And, uh, but he was a real interesting guy. He had all these little isms, he used to say. And uh, so he'd tell us to go stock the shelves. And before he told us to do it, sorry, facing the shelves means you start at one end of the store and you touch every single product in the entire store, thousands and thousands of them. You turn all the labels so they're perfectly facing out. You move the product forward. So it takes a little while because there's thousands and thousands of products. So you face the store. That's what he'd say. So he would say to us... Uh, now, I know this is a lesson in futility. That's how we'd always start it. And we just knew what was, it was great. It was predictable. Just every time you'd say, guys, come here for a second. Gather around. Now, I know this is a lesson in futility. Now, his voice wasn't exactly like that. But I need you to just get a picture of the, the intensity. But I need you to face, face all the aisles. I need you to go down every product. I need you to touch every product. You need to do this lesson in futility. Of course, it's a lesson in futility because for those of you kids who may be in here saying, what is lesson in futility? Because by the time you get to the last aisle, you could start over again, and you could just keep going until the return of our Lord. Because when there are people in a grocery store, things are constantly being touched and moved all the time. So it's a lesson in futility. You could just keep going around and around, an endless cycle. Cutting your lawn, lawn maintenance is like that. It's the fall, now it's the time to overseed, it's the time to do these kinds of things, fall lawn maintenance. We've been in our home for 16 years, I've been pulling weeds for 16 years it's a bit of a lesson in futility. I mean, I'm going to do it again, but I just know I'm going to have to do it again next year. It's just a lesson in futility. Um, Laundry is like that, right? And uh, my sister has five kids uh, because she's crazy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I I come from a family of five kids, so I can say that because we're crazy. So uh, she's got five kids, and so by the time she and they're, they're small, so by the time she finishes all the laundry, she just gets upset that they have the audacity to wear clothing, you know? She just sees them walking around like, oh, how dare you wear clothes? Do you know the amount of work this is being?" And uh, just ongoing, endless cycles, never-ending cycle of futility. Our text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and it's one of the most widely known pieces of poetic literature in the Bible. Um, Some of you are going to probably start singing in your heads as I read Ecclesiastes 3. Because you're going to recognize these lyrics, uh, which I'll touch on a little bit later. But what happens in Ecclesiastes 3 is Solomon looks out on the paradox of life. There's beautiful things and horrible things. And he concludes that we're all in these endless cycles of futility. And the cycles just seem to be never-ending And so we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I've seen the business that God's given to mankind to be busy with, with, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet no one can find out the works of God and what he has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his work. This is God's gift to mankind. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing could be added to it. Nothing could be taken from it. God has done it so that people will revere him. That which is has already been. And that which is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, wickedness was there. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are like the beasts. For whatever happens to the children of man and whatever happens to the beasts, it's the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is meaningless. They all go to one place. They're all from dust, and to dust they all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward into, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is God's word. Now, Solomon is wrestling with a huge paradox here of beauty and agony, and while we're all enjoying the beauty of life that's under the sun, there's this inescapable reality that lurks, and it's that death comes to everything that's under the sun, and this is Solomon's torment this is his conundrum it's tormenting him he's searching for meaning and purpose and joy that can transcend the reality of death but nothing under the sun is doing the trick and if you haven't been here the last two weeks let me catch you up super quick previously on ecclesiastes okay here's what happened solomon starts out in chapter one and verse one and he introduces himself as the teacher the english bible says that but in the hebrew it's helleth And the Qoheleth means the deep investigator, the one who sees where an idea is going. In other words, this book starts out with Solomon saying, Class, welcome to philosophy. For the next 12 chapters, I'll be walking you through the contemplations of the meaning of life. And he says, now here's my thesis. It's meaningless! And he's anticipating I saying, no, hold on, it's not meaningless. There's all these beautiful things. He's like, yeah, but they all die. Oh, hold on, but I, there's a thing called legacy. I can live a, a, as a positive, loving person, and even though the universe seems to be senseless and the origins came from nowhere, I can be very purposeful, and I can leave a dent in the world, and I can leave the world better than it was when I left it. And Solomon says, meaningless. In 10,000 years, nobody will know your name. In chapters one and two, he says, everything will be forgotten. Right? And he says, it's meaningless. Don't talk to me about this. If there's only life under the sun, and there's no God who created the sun, and there's nothing past the sun, they don't obsess about your legacy. Everything's going to be forgotten. In a billion years, everything you say matters doesn't. It's so depressing. The tone is depressing, but the goal is liberation. And so then he moves from that and he says... So because this seems to be so depressing, I don't want to think about it, so let's live for pleasure. And he realizes, no matter all of the pleasure that he can concoct, because he's got the resources to do it, he doesn't find pleasure. There is no pleasure in living for pleasure. It's meaningless. It's like a vapor. And so he moves from pleasure to work, and he realizes, oh my goodness, I can be the wisest man that ever lived, but then I'm dying anyways, and I'm leaving everything, and who knows if I leave it to a fool. And this is the tone. So by the time we get to this text... He's really grappling with a paradox because there are these beautiful things in life. You just read it—a time to be born and to plant and to heal. Uh, You know, a time for laughter and building up and all of the glorious things we enjoy about the earth and humanity. He sees all these beautiful things, but then there's just this lurking thing in the background that just keeps sucking the joy out of his heart. It's a paradox. Back in like 1959, a guy named. Uh, I think Pete uh, Siegel, Seeger, he wrote, he took these lyrics and he wrote a song, and in 1965, The Birds did it, which is the version that many of you uh, may know if you remember the 60s at all, if you lived through them and you remember them. But anyways, and so in 1965, they did the song, and you know, it's such a good song, they got it 50% right in terms of the tone. Because the song, and you remember it, it sounds like this, it goes... There is a season, turn, 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 there is a It's like a lullaby. It's very comforting. It's all, it's lyrics over major chords. A time to live, a time to die, a time to die. It's very happy. They even sing about dying happy. So like, it's an amazing song and it's 50% right. But I was thinking about this and thinking about Solomon and reading through his his philosophical treatise and realizing if I had to pick an artist to do that and do justice to Ecclesiastes 3, I wouldn't pick The Birds, even though they did a tremendous job and it's a great song, but it's only 50% right. I think who would get it right would be Andrew Lloyd Webber and some of the, the music that he did for Phantom of the Opera, particularly Angel of Music. Now, if you haven't seen Phantom of the Opera and Angel of Music, Angel of Music is a song that is, it's like got this beautiful melody and then it's got this haunting refrain It's like major chord, minor chord. It it just does something to your soul. It starts out because, you know, Christine is singing and then the phantom sings back to her. That's Ecclesiastes 3. Angel of music, come and listen. There's a time to be born, angel. Come to me, angel of music. Death! Angel of music, come and listen. It's a time for laughter, angel. Come to me, angel. Tears! That's Ecclesiastes 3. This is what he's wrestling with. See, here's the dilemma. The dilemma is there's a disparaging difference between the life that we want and the life that we have. And Solomon is identifying this, this challenge, this cycle. These first, ver- these first eight verses are inviting us to realize two things. Number one, all of our lives are unfolding in seasons. And number two, none of us control the seasons. They're happening. We read this like pragmatic North Americans. Solomon's not being pragmatic, he's being philosophical. If you're pragmatic, you go, ah, oh, there's a season for everything. So what I have to do is operate in wisdom and, and just identify what's, what season I'm in and then, you know, and then uh, make the right choices in that season. That's how I preached Ecclesiastes 3 about 10 years ago. And I've now realized that's dead wrong. Solomon's not saying, recognize the season, do the wise thing in the season. Yes, that's a very helpful way to live. But what he's, what he's actually getting us to do is go recognize that the seasons are going to turn, turn, turn. And you don't, they're not going to ask your permission. So where are you going to turn? Who are you going to turn to when the season in your life shifts and it's a devastating season? And for all of us, And for all of us, we have those seasons. And so this is what this kind of text provokes. Kids, if you look down in your notes, you'll see that um, that we, we, we kind of looked at what, what, this, what this text is encouraging us to do is to not put blinders on and only think about how life is beautiful, but to take the blinders off and recognize that you know, life is actually cyclical. And so where are we gonna turn in all this? How many of you students have ever started the beginning of a year and you're like, um, I'm, gonna use, I'm gonna take good notes this year I'm gonna use red for this and green for that and blue for that, and I'm gonna, and man, these notes are gonna be underlined and highlighted. Whenever you use a highlighter, you're trying to make something jump out. This Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is is Solomon using a highlighter. It's a Hebrew literary device called antitheletical parallelism. What a massive word. But in Hebrew poetry, antitheletical parallelism means I'm gonna take two things, juxtapose them to make a massive point about how big that chasm is. And Solomon uses 14. So from a literary point of view, it's like he's taking a big highlighter and going, do you see there's a difference between the perpetual life of joy that we want and the cyclical life of joy and pain that we actually have? What are we going to do about this? Where are we going to turn? How do we find meaning in all of this? This cyclical pattern, it provokes really big questions. And this is where Solomon goes with it. And one of the questions it provokes as he starts talking about injustice is, if life is a cycle, and there's this constant life cycle of life and death, life and death, generations coming and going. Is humanity getting anywhere? Are we getting anywhere? And he restates his thesis from the beginning. He says, no, we're not getting anywhere. But he's anticipating our answers. He's anticipating to say, hold on. Wait a second. Don't come at me with the Bible and say that hey, is not getting anywhere. We are advancing. We are evolving. We are moving forward. In science, yes. In technology, yes. In human achievement, absolutely yes. The human heart has made no progress. All of the oppression, violence, greed, injustice of the ancient world is all found today. And anyone who is philosophical recognizes this, and that's why human history is a huge problem for thoughtful people. Not just Solomon. As you go through, many philosophers, those who don't profess faith in Christ at all, they've come to the same conclusion as Solomon, which is that society is advancing in a technological sense, but our hearts are not advancing. And this is Solomon's dilemma. And so it kind of crescendos by the time it gets to verse 19, because he says, we're like the beasts. This is the dilemma. If all there is is life under the sun, then we're kind of like students in the last week of class. The report cards are already in. And guess what? You and the cockroach got the same grade, D for death, you know? And so Solomon's like, man, I just wish life was beautiful all the time and joyous and glorious. I mean... Can't we just be thoughtful people? Can't we put our guns down? This is ancient world Solomon, you know, 9, 950 B.C. or something like that, around when it was written. Man, can't we put our guns down? Surely society will advance. I, I bet you that in a few millennia from now, by 2018, nobody will have any guns anymore because we'll all just be living in peace and harmony because, no, 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 no. Not, we, we have not, we're not progressing. This is the dilemma of the human soul. This is what Solomon is really recognizing, this disparaging difference between the life that we all want and the injustice that there is in life and in the suffering. Because really what our souls cry out for is love without hate, joy without pain, harmony without oppression, meaning without despair. But there's a chasm between these things. So when you get to verse 17, he takes a look at places where he would expect to find justice, and he finds wickedness. And that's always kind of been the commentary of the human condition. And I'm, by the way, if you're here and you're a person of non-faith, if you're here this morning and you're like, I've got questions about God and questions about Christianity, I want to make something clear to you. The church, the, 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 the church is not absolved of, of having committed historical injustices. So I'm not standing here saying, like, the church, are, the church is where the good guys are and, and ever, all the bad guys are out there. God doesn't divide the world up that way. He's like, you're either in Christ or you're out. So, if you're here and you're having a hard time swallowing this, saying, well, you, well, the church isn't like this pristine historical picture of justice, I agree that there's black spots throughout all, human, all humanity. But the injustice of the church's history is not a logical, a logical argument against God's existence. So, if you, can't look at, uh, uh, you can't look at a church that does not represent the love of Jesus Christ and say, that's a terrible representation, God must not exist. No, we all just agree, that's a terrible representation of our front-runner, Jesus Christ. So I'm with you in that criticism, but I want to provoke you to look, 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 look deeper here beyond just Solomon who's saying, I'm seeing injustice where there's, where there's wickedness and where's the, where's the justice, right? Because about 600 years later after Solomon wrote this, another guy who was thinking about the world and thinking about justice named Plato wrote his Republic, and it's 10 books, and by the time you get to book five, Plato writes Dear Socrates this quest for justice may lead us to prayer because he realizes there's no just person and there's no just city. And he wasn't professing his faith in Christ. He was just a philosopher looking out on the heart of humanity and saying, in his words, the heart of man is fevered. In other words, it's sick. And then 600 years later, after Plato, another guy named Augustine wrote City of God, which is 20 books. And when you get to book number 14, Augustine makes the same conclusions that Plato made, that other philosophers made, that Solomon made, which is that the heart of man is is fevered. In book 14 of City of God, this is what Augustine wrote. He said, two cities are formed by two loves. The city of man is founded on the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the city of God is founded on the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The city of man Lifts up its head for its own glory. The city of God says, God, you are my glory. The city of man, the people are ruled by the love of ruling. The city of God, the people serve one another in love. And so this dilemma has always been a part of our human history. We are like homeless utopians, which is the way you know, Peter Hitchens described us. If we say there is no God and there is no heaven, we climb up into the throne to be our own God and we're incapable of creating heaven. Because we've been at it for a few millennia. Like really smart people. And here we are. So this is, a, this is the fundamental problem. Now there is good news coming. Because we have to look at all of the scriptures through the lens of Jesus Christ. What he has done, the implications of his grace... The message of the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we should be living, but we're not, and he died a sacrificial death for us, and he rose again on the third day, and that empty tomb says something. And so for those of us who've placed our faith in Christ, and we're resting in the grace and the forgiveness of Christ, we we now look out on the paradox of life with a very different perspective, and it's not depression, it's liberation, It's very liberating now to recognize that there's more than just this life that's under the sun, that we don't get the same report card as the cockroach. And so, we can think, I think we can identify with Solomon's frustration here, right? Because life is already short and hard, and then you throw injustice into the mix. This injustice, think about it. Have you ever suffered because somebody was not held accountable for their actions, Suffering and pain brought into your life because somebody got away with it. How many people today are getting away with it? How many people over the course of human history died having gotten away with it? See, if there is no God, then there is no final judgment and there's no justice. So it doesn't matter what side of ethics you're on if in the end we just get the same report card as the cockroach, if we're like the beasts. It's all meaningless. We can tell ourselves, no, it's meaningful. Leave the world better for the next generation. A thousand years from now, it will not matter. 300 years from now, no one will remember your name. Can you name your, 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 you your great-great-great-grandparents on both sides? Do you know their names? In four, in four or five hundred years, nobody's going to know our name. This is Solomon's point. He's like, man, there's got to be something more than this. And praise God that, 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 that there absolutely is something more than this. There is more than life under the sun. There is a God who created the sun. There is life beyond the sun. And in the end, all of history is going to be held accountable. Because God has the wisdom to hold history accountable. God has the power to execute judgment and hold history accountable. And that's what Solomon says in verse 17. He says God will hold all of history into account. Our problem is, we want Him to do that right now. We look out on the injustice of the world and we say, "Well, if there, you know, well if there is a God, well He can't be that good. And if He's good, then He can't be all powerful because look at all of these problems in the world. Where is this God that you speak of? We want the justice now. But here's the the, the problem with with that. The problem is that none of us are innocent. And God's delay on his judgment is his mercy and grace on display. I'm glad that judgment day wasn't 20 years ago, because 20 years ago, my faith was not in Christ alone. My faith was in like Jesus was a pretty good guy, but also the life I'm living. So I'm glad judgment day wasn't 20 years ago, because I would have been under that judgment. And there's 100 stories in this room of the same thing. So why isn't, if God is going to bring perfect justice, why isn't he doing it now? I don't know. But here's what I know. He's much more concerned about timing than we are. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has an encounter with the demon. And the demon says to Jesus, Legion, Matthew 8, the the demon says, hey, are you going to torment us before the time? What are you doing, Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Are you going to torment us before the time? The time in the Greek, the kairos. Kairos in Greek means the appointed time, a significant moment. I mean, the demons themselves know there's a, our, there's a D-Day is coming for us. But the demons also knew that wasn't the day. Can you even think about that for a second? Pff, that'll blow your mind. The demons are saying to Jesus, hey, we know we're all going to be goners. We know you're going to eradicate evil, restore everything. But that day is not today. So God is more concerned about timing than, than we are, for sure. Absolutely. The Bible reveals repeatedly that God has always been incredibly slow to bring judgment. It's his mercy and his grace on display because none of us are innocent. Church is not where good people go. Church is where forgiven people go to worship Jesus, the only one who is good by God's standards. Yes, of course we live to the glory of Christ. We continually desire to be sanctified and hate our sin and love our Savior and love our neighbor and be good people who care about the city and are a blessing to the city. Yes, and amen to all of those things. But I'm, I'm defining good as God defines good. And God's definition of good is incarnating himself in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but this preacher would go straight to hell if I had to, if I had to uh, live my life to the standard of Jesus Christ. Bad news. Everybody in this room, you're going, you've been going straight to hell too. The most sanctified person in here, if it was dependent upon your works, So you see, none of us are innocent. All of us are recipients of God's grace. And the fact that God doesn't just deal with you know, judgment on our time clock is his mercy on display. Because he has been saving and is saving people that we would never save. He has been saving the unjust from the beginning because unjust people are the only people that there are. Solomon's complaint is, where's the justice? Plato's complaint was, where's the justice? All of the other philosophers' complaints were, where's the justice? Augustine's complaint was, where's the justice? Your complaint, my complaint, is where's the justice? Here's the good news. God in his great grace comes in Jesus Christ so that you and I would not be recipients of the justice that we're calling for. (laughs) And in his great grace... He comes in Jesus Christ and he forgives all of our sins so that by putting our faith in him, Jesus Christ has the audacity to scandalously unite himself to us so that on judgment day, we don't get the justice that we're all crying for. Oh, judgment day's coming. Don't worry about it. If you're here and you're a person of non-faith, you say this whole thing is ridiculous and fairy tales and you're talking about judgment day. Listen, friend, l- listen, I d- may, let. please let me provoke you. I believe in the virgin birth. You believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Pick your miracle. Okay? We both believe in miracles. And so, at, at the end of the day, there's only going to be uh, life, life or death, and Solomon is provoking us to look for not just life under the sun and meaning under the sun, but life beyond the sun. This is the good news of uh, the gospel for those of us who place our faith in Christ, and I would encourage you to do the same. When you get to verse 11, Solomon kind of takes an aside. When I say aside, what I mean is The way to understand Ecclesiastes is, number one, he's being philosophical. Number two, he's kind of method, so he's sitting in the seat of the skeptic, the skeptical person, the person who says, the skeptic says, we're not sure if there's a God, we're not sure if there's an afterlife, so let's just live for the present, right? Because that's what secular means in the Latin, secularia, it means the present, So the secular person says, we don't really know what's later. We we only have the now, so live for the now. So what Solomon does is he's doing that. And so he's playing out all these roles. But then all of a sudden in verse 11, he does this aside. He breaks the fourth wall. He comes out of his, the one man play. And he looks us straight in the eye. And what he says breaks through the depression and darkness like a sunbeam breaking through a dark, senseless sky. And here's what he says in verse 11. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. That can be understood two ways in the Hebrew. Beautiful as in, oh, that's beautiful. Or beautiful as in appropriate. God has made everything appropriate in its time. God has made everything fitting in its time. This is inviting us to recognize our smallness and God's greatness. In other words, the seasons change without our permission So where are we going to turn? Because everything is beautiful in its time. Everything is appropriate in its time. And Solomon refuses to be a philosophical ostrich, living in a violent disconnect between the meaninglessness that he sees in the life-death cycle and the undeniable desire for meaning that he has in his soul. And here we are, creatures desiring meaning. And and Solomon says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. C.S. Lewis was an apologist who wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He was an atheist, writer and philosopher, who came to faith, and this is what he said about meaninglessness. He said, if the whole universe has no meaning, then we should have never found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know that it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So after Solomon says God made everything beautiful in his time, he says this liberating, shocking thing, and he says, God has put eternity in our hearts. Now that's a game changer. God has put eternity in our hearts. Why do we crave meaning if there's no meaning? If there's no origin to the universe and we're just a collocation of molecules that just spontaneously for no reason came together, why do we care about this thing called meaning if fundamentally we're all mistakes, accidents? And Solomon says, there's a reason we crave this sense of meaning. There's a reason we desire for beauty and we wish it was perpetual beauty because God has put cheholam, eternity in our hearts, a craving for permanence of life, a craving for perpetual life of meaning, for joy and love and pleasure that has no horizon, life with no vanishing point. That's what we want, and that's what God put in our hearts. So everyone, every human, whether their faith is in Christ or not, are Looking for something to fill the void, to give the perpetual joy, the perpetual meaning, the perpetual sense of, of uh, validation and of u- utility and not futility in their soul. This is why we crave it. This is why we're deeply bothered when we, when we think about mortality because our souls were created for eternity. We rage against a temporary existence that's cyclical Because we were made for an eternal existence that is linear. This is why at funerals we're so uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't even want to be there. We're at a loss. We don't want to see the casket. We don't want to walk by the casket. Close the casket. No casket. Don't call it a funeral. Call it a celebration of life service. This is what us Westerns do. We don't go to funerals like sociopaths. Nobody goes and shakes the hand of the of the widow and says, "Well, you know, it's just a natural part of life." I mean, we're a collocation of molecules. We had a senseless, we had a senseless uh, origins. We have a senseless death. We're telling ourselves that life has meaning, but really they don't. So, um, good luck to you with the remainder of your days before you return to the dust like a cockroach. Nobody says that at a funeral. Skeptics and atheists, what what do we what do we do if you're here this morning and you're a person of non faith? And i got to say, the Christians, we fall into all this stuff. The Christians do the same thing too. They sit there at the funeral. And what do we do? We have to all of a sudden try and extract meaning out of it. So what, how do we talk about the dead? They were a world changer. They changed all of our lives. Don't worry, everybody. They didn't die for no reason. The good news of the gospel is the end is not death. So the Christian weeps at the funeral, and yet with a sense of joy. We have sorrow, but not like one who doesn't have hope, because there is more than life under the sun. There is a God who created the sun. There is life past the sun. There is eternity in our hearts, which is, which is why we crave this permanence, and why we crave this... This uh, sense of joy without pain. Because that's what we were created for. It goes on to say that God has put eternity in your hearts. And only God sees the beginning to end. We don't see the beginning to end. Here we are in the middle. The paradox of life with joy and suffering. Life and death. Peace and war. Living life in this paradox. Trying to make sense of the paradox. And we can't make sense of the paradox. But God is the only one who sees who sees from beginning to end he's got the God's eye view lots of people have said well I don't understand why God would let the suffering continue so there can't be a God I don't know why God would let injustice continue so I can't believe in God I don't know I don't understand I'm looking at science and I'm trying to consolidate science with a God who's the origin you know the origins of the universe and the one who's breathing fire into all of the scientific equations I can't figure it out you know therefore God can't be is that logical is that logical Is it logical that because you can't think of a reason, there's no reason? Isn't it more logical that if the one who spun the cosmos into existence is infinite and our little brains are finite, that not understanding it is logical? Doesn't it make more sense that if we look out at the paradox of the world and suffering and joy and beautiful things and terrible things and we can't make sense of it all, but there is a God who is weaving a tapestry of history who is going to judge all of history... Doesn't it make more sense that we can't figure that out? I think it makes more sense. Wouldn't it be terrifying if you came to church this morning and I said our text today is Ecclesiastes three? I'm going to explain comprehensively the meaning of life, the origins of the universe. And like, wouldn't you leave here saying that was a little unnerving? But that the, 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 the mysteries of the cosmos fit in Paul Dunk's little head, arguably big head. But I mean, you know, you get what I'm saying. You understand? Wouldn't that be terrifying? I think it makes more sense that an infinite God can't be comprehensively understood, though he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ by coming and incarnating himself. This past week, and I'm going to close with this. You know, this past week, we went to Hurley's, which is this little vegetable, you know, kind of market outside the city. And they have a corn maze there, and I was in it with Nigel, and we're going through the corn maze, and the corn was about nine nine or ten feet tall. And it reminded me of being in the corn maze when... Isaiah was a little kid because uh, it was interesting because the corn wasn't very high. Isaiah was a little guy. The corn was only about four and a half, five feet high. So we were going through the corn maze and Isaiah was like, which way do you think we should go, Dad? And I was like, I think we should go this way. I think we should go that way. And he's like, how do you know? I could see over the corn. I could see over all the corn. I could see where all the paths led. I saw the whole thing. God sees over the corn of your suffering he sees over the corn of human history. He sees over the corn of all of the paradoxes that we can't make sense of. He knows where it's all leading. He's got it. We are down here, wandering through the corn. And Ecclesiastes is a book saying, well, as you're wandering through the corn, you're going to come to a lot of dead ends. And my question for you is, where are you going to turn? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to find help? What are you going to do? The good news of the gospel is that it changes everything. In the beginning, there was no no life-death cycle. Solomon is raging about the cycle. Jesus Christ came and he put an end to the life-and-death cycle. Sin brought the meaningless cycle. Jesus Christ came through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and he put an end to the cycle. And he restored us to an eternal, linear reality by uniting us to himself by grace. Jesus is the answer For the meaningless cycle of suffering and the meaningless cycle of injustice. Why? Because Jesus is the one person who didn't deserve suffering. Yet he came into our suffering so that in the end he could eradicate suffering. Jesus is the one person who did not deserve injustice. And he came into our injustice and he suffered injustice so that in the end he could return and judge injustice. He took it all. The real question is not, why does God allow suffering and injustice to happen? The real question is, why did God allow the suffering and injustice to happen to him? And the answer is, he loves you. Jesus came to take on your suffering, your pain, your injustice, your sin, so that in the end, he could judge evil without judging you. And if you're in Christ, good news, church, your judgment day has already happened. And you already have your verdict not guilty, by grace alone. And this is why we worship him and marvel at him and raise our children to worship him and bend their knee to him. Jesus Christ is the answer to the meaningless cycles of a short life that ends in death by uniting himself to us so we can have eternal life. His resurrection foreshadows ours. Amen.